All right, hello, welcome back to Unqualified Analysis. I have got no shower today, same shirt as yesterday, haven't shaved, but we are here recording on a Monday afternoon. There is, there's construction down the street, and uh, you know what? I'm tired, but we are moving this thing along here. Hell, I'm actually more well-rested than I have been in, I don't know, probably about a week from today, I suppose. So, hey, we'll see. Either way, I am your host, Caleb Verzak. You can follow me on all my socials at, you guessed it, Caleb Verzak. Uh, shoot me a DM if you want uh, to add something to the show, probably better than the email. But if you want to do the email, it's uh, unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com to send all your questions, whatnot, business inquiries, yada, yada, yada there, or the DMs. I don't know. Either way, subscribe wherever you're listening. Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon, any of those ones. Just go in there. Hit the subscribe button. Uh, does nothing for you. Does everything for your boy over here. Makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. But uh, with that, I've got a, uh, you know what? It's an episode. We, we, we've got the, the Eastern Conference Finals going on. Maybe not the most interesting series. Certainly not as interesting as I thought they would be. But still, it's sports that are going on right now, so we'll get to that. And then we got some off-season headlines. I mean, we're talking about talking about golf. We're talking about a horse racing. We're talking about, of course, a little bit of football in there, but not quite as much as I would I would like to have in there. But without further ado, just crack this bad boy open, shall we? We got stuff to talk about. First off, let's start off with some uh, conference finals here in the NBA, shall we? Let's start in the East because I'm on the East Coast. Why not? Uh, we got the Heat's up. 3-0 on the Celtics right now. Not necessarily something I think anyone saw coming. I think we thought that, I mean, personally, I thought that the Heat would do well. I thought they'd make this a competitive series. I didn't think they'd run the Celtics off the floor. That's pretty much what they've done so far. And I'll tell you what, the Celtics have got some problems, ladies and gentlemen. They coughed up a nine-point lead at halftime in game one with a 46-point third quarter by the Miami Heat. Lose that in game one. They coughed up an eight-point lead uh, in, heading into the fourth quarter of game two. Lose that one by six. And they absolutely, I mean, they just rolled over, keeled over, and died pretty much the entire game. I think the Heat were up by like 30 at various points in that one. End up winning by 26. And there you have it right there. Heat up 3-0. Celtics down 0-3. I mean, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum have played well but by the numbers, but completely disappeared in these fourth quarters. I mean, Jason Tatum has been just straight up awful in these fourth quarters so far. Uh, Celtics key role players, uh, they played well, but not quite as well as, as the Heats have, and not well enough to overcome the play of their stars down the stretch. And ultimately, call it what it is, Eric Spolstra has totally and completely outcoached Joe, Joe Missoula in this series, and Joe Missoula kind of got outcoached in last series as well which has heavily contributed to why the Heat have been able to pull all these games out down the stretch. Really, outside of Game 3, a bunch of close games here thus far. I mean, relatively close. I mean, the Heat won by 7 in Game 1. They won by 6 in Game 2. They were all there for the Celtics to take down the stretch, though, if their key players, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, would have had... Uh, performances commiserate with the rest of the games that they've had. I mean, Jason, Jason Tatum in particular, I think he's scoring over 30 a game so far in this series, uh, but that really has not translated into the uh, the down to stretch in the fourth quarter, and it's shown in the, in the final uh, scores of these games. I mean, just the Heat being able to pull these out. I'll tell you what, uh, the Celtics had a better roster, more potent offense-defense combo coming in here, home court advantage, and they were heavily favored coming into this year. So I think it was 97% to 3%, according to some uh, obviously BS uh, metric by ESPN coming into this series. And then what do you know? 
Now they find themselves in an 0-3 hole, which no team in NBA history has ever overcome to this point. And I'll tell you what, the series isn't technically over just yet, but I've, I've seen nothing to tell me that the Celtics have what it takes to make a historic four-game run and pull off a miracle. If they were going to play with their backs up against the walls and really come out and show us that this is still a series, they would have done it in game three. And what do you know? They lost by a thousand in game three. Didn't look competitive for really any stretch of the game after the initial portions of it. And I don't know, man. Just doesn't feel like this team has what it takes to win a championship. Not this year. Maybe last year under Ime Udoka, but, you know, don't have to rehash that all over again. Who, who the hell even knows what happened in that situation? But it all disintegrated when it was all said and done. Now you got Joe Missoula in there, and it just does not feel like... It feels like he's in over his head coaching in the postseason. Obviously, in the regular season, his system worked to perfection being... Uh, top two in both offense and defense. Getting to the postseason, though, I mean, struggled to put away the Hawks. Uh, down 3-2 at one point to the Celtics before Doc Rivers did a Doc Rivers. And James Harden and Joel Embiid did their thing when it comes to clutch time. Particularly James Harden uh, just kind of wilted under the pressure like he has throughout the course of his career, unfortunately. That's a different subject uh, for a different time of the show because we're going to talk about that one a little bit later. But put a pin in that for now. Um, like I said, this, not technically over Feels like the Celtics are going home, though, in the next game or two. Basically, maybe they win one in game four with their backs up against the wall to, to maybe uh, make it a gentleman sweep. Maybe they win, win one in game five. But going for game six, at the very least, I feel like the Heat are going to close this out sometime in the next three games. It's probably going to be in the next one or two, if I had to guess, though, because they are, at this point, this is not a team as well coached as they are that gives up a 3-0 uh, uh, lead at this point in the series. They're going to put this thing away. It's just a matter of when, not if, in my opinion. And I'll tell you what, changes are coming this offseason for the Boston Celtics. The only guy that I think won't be going anywhere is Jason Tatum right now. He's the best player on the team, for better or for worse. He's a guy that you can build around, and I think you can you know, give him that $300 million contract and feel okay with that. Jalen Brown, I'm not sure if he fits into the whole equation. Joe Missoula, probably the surest thing of them all. He's probably going to get fired after this. I mean, make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. It is what it is. You crumble down the stretch and NBA coaching carousel, as we've seen over the last couple weeks or so, specifically with Monty Williams getting fired. It's not fair, but it is what it is when it gets down to these things. You either got it or you don't. And it feels like Joe Missoula just doesn't got it right now. And I'll tell you what, I've said this time and time again, maybe not on the podcast, but just in various discussion with, with friends about this whole thing. They just don't have a consistent ball handler when you get down into the crunch time situations. They got a guy in Jalen Brown who's he's good for uh, getting buckets, I suppose. Not particularly, I mean, he's okay at defense, I guess. He's a well-respected guy on defense, if nothing else. But you get down to the clutch time situations, basically just leaning on Jason Tatum. And Jason Tatum in these situations... Again, for better or for worse, maybe it's maybe it's a product of not having a true point guard that can put him in a position uh, to take an easier shot. Maybe it's just the way he is. Maybe it's just a, a little bit of his makeup as a basketball player. But you get down into these clutch situations, and he's just allergic to taking easy shots. Sometimes he catches fire. Sometimes he closes teams out. You saw it a couple times down the stretch in that previous series with the 76ers. But at the end of the day... You get right down to it, and taking crossover behind the back fadeaways from 30 feet out is not necessarily a sustainable model when it comes to consistent clutch time performance, and 
I feel like you need a, you need a, a consistent point guard, a consistent ball handler to come in there, be the second best player, and kind of orchestrate this offense a little bit more. And Jalen Brown, I'm just not sure he fits into the equation. I mean, maybe you can pull it off. That's a big price tag to give him, though, as far as the max contract that he will be demanding. I mean, rightly, his agency, I would assume, him, all the people that represent him are going to be gunning for the largest contract possible, which I think is right around what Jason Tatum's is in this coming upcoming offseason. So around $300 million for that guy who is not a number one player on your team. He's been good, but not great in these situations. I don't know. I don't know if he's necessarily worth that price tag there. And it's really just... You're kind of being redundant with the Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum thing. I think you'd like to have both, but if Jalen Brown comes back, I think somehow, some way, they're going to have to get a ball handler in there. I said it a couple times at this point in this little rant I'm going on now, but you need to have someone in there that when it gets down to it, just makes doesn't make it so it's just all ISO and no creativity. That's that's really what this all comes down to is they have trouble closing teams out because there's not this really just give the ball to Jason Tatum give the ball to Jalen Brown and hope for the best when it's when it's all said and done down in the clutch time and it's just again you, you can't expect to go out there shoot crazy shots and do the Kobe system sort of thing where you get the ball and then you take ridiculous fadeaway shots and hell Jason Tatum I believe it was in game two kind of wilted under the spotlight had a, again throughout this entire series like I said before not really been great in the fourth quarter I mean he's been great for three quarters outside of that but fourth quarters he has just disappeared down the stretch in this one I think it is because this is a more disciplined defensive team in the Miami Heat they understand that if you force him into tough contested shots every single time maybe he gets hot for one quarter and if so so be it but ultimately get down here toward the end and you force tough shots, that's really all you can ask for. And more times than not, it's going to result in some crazy, inefficient play. And without someone to create easier shots, that's just going to happen time and time again. It's the problem with this team's makeup right now. And I don't know how you fix it, quite frankly. It's not a great uh, free agent class this time around. So it's not like you can go out there, pay someone in free agency and have this thing all fixed up uh, as much as you can. That's kind of why I think Jalen Brown might be part of a sign and trade sort of thing. I don't know if he's a free agent this offseason or if he can sign an extension, but feels like Jalen Brown is going to be used as a piece to trade elsewhere to maybe you go for a Dame Lillard over there in Portland. Maybe, uh, well, it's not going to be Jalen Brunson for sure. He's kind of locked in with the Knicks right now, but any one of these, these dynamic point guards, hell, maybe you go for like a Tyrese Halliburton. I'm not sure whether the Pacers are going to be willing to give him up, but the Pacers have been losers in the past uh, all the way up until this point, so why would they stop doing that now? The, the main goal, though, this offseason is going to be getting a true ball handler in there that you can trust in these clutch time situations that you can put in there and believe that he's going to put your star Jason Tatum because no matter what get right down to it Jason Tatum is going to be the best player on this team no matter what and he's not going anywhere because he's going to be the best player on this team pretty much no matter what you need a guy to put him in better situations Jalen Brown has not done that to this point and really has no indication that he's really capable of doing that to this point. So I think you use Jalen Brown in some in some trade sort of scenarios, uh, throw in some draft compensation as needed and try to get a guy in there that kind of closely, more closely matches what Jason Tatum does uh, when it's all said and done. So I don't know where the Boston Celtics go from here, but it just does not feel like they're going to run it back with the core they have now. Obviously, Joe Missoula is probably out. If I had to guess, Jalen Brown is probably out as well. Jason Tatum still going to be the cornerstone of that franchise, but I think we're looking 
in the, the beginning of the 2023 season coming up here, I think we're going to be looking at a very different Boston Celtics squad going forward from coach to, to player composition to team competition, all sort of stuff there. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting offseason, really for both Boston and the 76ers, who we're going to talk about here in just a bit. But let's stick with the teams that are still playing for now. we got the Western Conference Finals and a series that is no less interesting as the Nuggets lead the Lakers 3-0 right now. And Hell, by the time y'all are hearing this, this series could actually be over. There's a game four that tips tonight, Monday night, as I'm recording this at 8.30 p.m. Uh, by the time this whole thing comes out, Nuggets could have won that game and they could have just totally swept the Lakers 4-0. And I wouldn't be surprised because the Nuggets have been playing out of their minds. As good as they played in the previous round versus the Suns, they've somehow stepped it up a notch against the Lakers in this one. I mean, only one game has been won by double digits, but the Nuggets have really shown their championship DNA in this conference championship series with how they've closed these games out in fourth quarters. And granted, game one, very exciting game. They had the whole off of Lakers onslaught uh, to win in a track meet, but in games three and four, they outscored the Lakers for a combined score of 67 to 50 in that final frame of those games. Jamal Murray came up clutch in both occasions, got going nuclear in game two uh, with 23 points in the fourth. Then coming out of the gates hot in game three, 30 points in the first half of that one. Uh, kind of went cold down the stretch, but hit a big shot late to kind of put that game away. And there you have it right there. The Lakers down 0-3. Jokic had two straight triple doubles to start the series. It was a, a streak of four straight uh, dating back to the, uh, the the last two games of the Sun series before breaking that streak in game three. They still ended up winning, so it's all good. Jamal Murray scored 37 in two straight games there. He's really showing that he can be that consistent number two scoring option all throughout this playoff, specifically in this round, though. And I'll tell you what, the role players have all been coming up big as well. I mean, KCP, Contavious Caldwell, Pope talked about him last year in the lead-up, talking about this is maybe the best basketball he's played in his entire career. He came up clutch in the second half of Game 3, as well as scoring 21 in Game 1. Michael Porter has shot over 40% from three in every game thus far in this series. And Bruce Brown has been consistently efficient coming off the bench. The Nuggets have done nothing to assuage the popular uh, thought that they're the best team remaining in this postseason so, so far in this series. I don't see any evidence to the contrary. Even with the Heat going up 3-0 on the other side, it's not like the Lakers have been playing uh, bad and flawed like the like the Celtics have. In the Anthony Davis, LeBron, Austin Reeves, all of them have been playing really well for the Lakers in this series. Also, you got Rui Hachimura playing some of the some really good basketball, some of the best basketball he's played in his entire career, specifically uh, in this sort of clutch situation, deep, deep run of the playoffs. Jared Vanderbilt and D'Angelo Russell ultimately haven't been playing well this series, and that's really what's what's been the difference thus far. When you get down to it. It's what everyone was talking about heading into this series. The Nuggets are just a deeper team than the Lakers, and it's shown up in big situations over and over again. It, like I said, it's not just Jamal Murray going crazy down the stretch. It's not just Nikola Jokic being Nikola Jokic and just being a freak as far as an offensive player is concerned. It's been this Contavious Caldwell Pope. I mean, I wouldn't call Michael Porter Jr. a role player. He's the third best player on the team, but he's been playing that, that shooting role very, very well. Aaron Gordon, not getting a whole lot of shine there, but he's been playing that dirty work role very well throughout this whole thing. 
And like I said, they go eight, like I said last week, they go eight deep in the playoffs when just about no one else does that. You go seven at best and you're hoping for six that you can really count on. I feel like they got like seven different guys that they could really feel good about coming into these games. And that's just a, it's an asset that no one else has right now. And like I said, like the with the last series, it may not technically be over, but like I said in the previous series, no team in NBA history has ever come back from a 3-0 deficit to win. So we can start tentatively looking ahead to the likely finals matchup here. I mean, the Heat have been a different team in this postseason, and I'm sure scoring chances will be plentiful in the, the eventual finals matchup between the Heat and the Nuggets that they're going to uh, run into the same problem that every other team has in the West, though. The Nuggets team, this Nuggets team, rather, led by Nikola Jokic, supported by Murray and Porter and a deep, deep cast around them is just head and shoulders better than anyone else on that in that, that field right now. It's it's just, it's the Nuggets than everyone else. Not like the Nuggets are a perfect team, but of the teams remaining, there's no question who the best team uh, going right now is. Um, I said it last week. I'll say it again now. This feels like the year for the Nuggets to finally go win a title uh, with Jokic and the crew. And from here, once they get a taste of that championship, who knows how good this team is going to be? Who knows who they can attract to town? Who knows uh, just how good this roster can be going forward? They got that core together for a good while now. I mean, as far as Jokic, Murray, Michael Porter Jr., all of those guys are going to be in Denver for the foreseeable future. Maybe you got some question marks around that, but this championship caliber core is going to be together for a good while going forward. Michael Malone's already been there for like seven years at this point and no sign of, of being run out of town uh, to this point, especially with how well they've played this postseason. And I don't expect the Heat to wilt like the Lakers have thus far, but they should win the finals in that matchup. I can, I, can, I don't want I don't want to say anything about guarantees or anything like right now, but the Nuggets right now, they just look like a championship team. Flat out, uh, end of story right there. And with that, that's pretty much your basketball update right now. I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time on this basketball right now because they're, they're not very competitive series, unfortunately. I was hoping for a little bit more competitive series. I was hoping for some very interesting conference final series, but it just hasn't turned out that way, unfortunately. And, you know, maybe maybe the Lakers can make a run at this down the stretch. Maybe maybe the Celtics can get hot and make a run at this down the stretch. But at 03, it just feels like an inevitability that we're going to get Heat versus Nuggets in the finals. And it's going to get decided throughout the course of this week. So by the time we talk next time, it's either going to be official or someone's going to have completely subverted my expectations. And you know what? I... I hope for such a thing because that would be that would make it a little bit more interesting to talk about here in late May when we're doing this. We are in the true doldrums of the offseason. But with that, uh, done with the NBA, let's get into some headlines, shall we? We got this one shaping up to be a quick episode, ladies and gentlemen. That is probably the quickest NBA segment I've done thus far in the playoffs, man. I kept it to a tight, like, yeah, 18, definitely under 20 minutes because we're still looking at under 20 minutes on the raw recording, and there are some things that I'm going to be able to cut out of there time-wise. Uh, maybe not from the actual words, but, you know, i got some pauses in there, you know, stopping to drink my ice-cold caffeinated beverage, but we're just going to keep it rolling here. Sticking with basketball for a little bit longer here because... I told y'all last week that a big lottery was coming up here, and there was a winner to that lottery. There's a winner to every lottery, I suppose, but I digress on that front. Just a second here. I have got some things to do right quick. 
And never mind, dude just dropped the package at the door. I saw him walking up, uh, just looking over to my left here, scanning to make sure that I didn't have to sign anything, but we're good. <laughs> it's, it's all good, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so what was I saying? Ah, yes, the Spurs, after after all the, the chagrin that they faced throughout the course of the season, chagrin, what am I? What am I even talking about? What, what kind of words am I using right now? I got, I got a tired brain, but we're just just going through it right now, man. We are just pedaling through this whole thing. But anyways, the Spurs have won the shun victory for Victor Wimbanyama. Sweepstakes, they will have the number one pick. Much to the chagrin, there's that's where I got chagrin from. It's later in the outline here. Much to the chagrin of the league office who would have loved to see the number one pick go to the Rockets or the Wizards who at one point, I'll tell you what, Wizards had a better than 50-50 shot to win that number one pick. And in true Washington fashion, they end up with the number eight pick because that's just that's just perfect poetry right there. They have a 50-50 shot of going number one. You think, hey, maybe they end up with like a, with the two or three pick. Nope. With all that good juju going for them, they still end up with a number eight pick. And that's pretty much a good encapsulation of what the Washington Wizards have been for the entirety of their history. But I digress in that front. NBA League office... Would have loved to see him go to a big, big uh, sort of TV market, big sort of streaming market there with a whole bunch of people uh, in the area. Uh, didn't go to a small market, well, kind of a small market as far as the streaming is concerned with the, with San Antonio. But you know, much to the chagrin of the league office, not quite what they were hoping for. But I love to see their tears streaming down their face. The taste tastes so good, tastes so good. Their depression over there. But the San Antonio Spurs have won the most consequential NBA draft lottery since LeBron James came out. For my money, uh, for whatever the hell the, all the all the experts are saying, it's getting a little out of control with the Victor Wimbanyama hype right now. They're saying he's a, the best prospect maybe in team sports history, better than LeBron, better than all these. But Chris Broussard just jumped right off the deep end, head first into about an empty pool, I would imagine. Um, he said, "If <laughs> I think he, the, the quote was, if Victor Wimbanyama turns out to be like a Hakeem Olajuwon or Tim Duncan, that will be a failure asinine quote, but this is why Chris Broussard is, isn't working for anyone that I really care about right now. That, among other things, I would imagine. But that is all to say, the Victor Wembanyama hype is reaching critical mass right now. And I'll tell you what, Victor Wembanyama will be going to the Alamo to start his NBA career. Whether he likes that or not, probably going to be there for at least seven years, I would imagine. That's basically how this whole thing is structured with max contracts and whatnot. Obviously, that first deal, he's going to sign the extension, has that rookie deal going right now. So they got a nice little window here before Victor Wimbanyama decides to go elsewhere in all likelihood. He's not... He's got some personality to him. He's got some flair to him. There's a good chance. This isn't going to be like a John Moran situation where he he shuns the spotlight, doesn't necessarily love to be out there. Probably not going to be like a Nikola Jokic situation who, once the NBA offseason comes around, see ya, he is nowhere to be found. He, I mean, where in the world is Nikola Jokic? Probably somewhere in Serbia. But who's to even say once the offseason comes around? Big Vic's got some flair to him. He, he wants to be in a big market somewhere, whether that ends up being like a Houston or a, or a Dallas one day, maybe in L.A. if it comes down to that. Um, I just don't see him ending off his career with, with the San Antonio Spurs. I don't see him spending double-digit years with the San Antonio Spurs when it's all said and done. Uh, you know, you've got your window with him. Right now, you got to make the best of that window uh, while you still got it there. 
And that's that's what the that's what San Antonio has in store for him. At least seven years though, they've got a chance to build a team around Victor Wembanyama and make a run at this thing. And talking about the Spurs here, maybe the luckiest franchise in league history when it when it comes to getting first overall picks. Just got maybe the luckiest break of them all. I mean, they got David Robinson, they got Tim Duncan with a number one overall pick at the end of David Robinson's career. Now maybe the biggest franchise changer of them all, Victor Wembanyama, is on his way to San Antonio as well. And if, it, if the name doesn't ring a bell, understandable, this is a football podcast, but just know Victor Wembanyama is a seven foot five uh, guard skills, modeled his name after, not, not modeled his name, modeled his game after Kevin Durant. This is a legit player right now. I mean, the, the way he plays over in France, it's he's an alien, absolute alien. He can block three point shots. Uh, he, can, he can block out the sun and hell. To, to really, this this is the highlight that I think a lot of people are latching on to. He shoots a three-pointer at one point, gets a tip-back dunk off of his own three-pointer. That's the type of player we're looking at with Victor Wembanyama. Just an absolute freak. Yao Ming height, and, and maybe not quite the, the thickness of Yao Ming, but Yao Ming height with guard skills. That's what we're looking at with Victor Wembanyama. And, I mean, a, a game-changing type of player like, I mean, legitimately a once-in-a-generational type of prospect there. Who's to say how good he ends up being? But the raw talent is there to be a special, special player. I'm not going to go to the Chris Broussard lengths, but there's a very good chance he scores 20-plus a game next year. Has some crazy sort of defensive numbers as well as far as changing shots around the rim. Uh, hopefully he doesn't get injured, but I mean, the Spurs have got some rebuilding to do around him. Uh, like I said, there's no guarantee that a seven foot five wing player will consistently stay healthy. But there's no question that they got a generational talent with that number one overall pick coming their way. The pick's not essentially made yet, but I mean, they, they might as well just put the pick in preemptively and say, hey, we're picking you right now. No need to have any sort of semblance of mystery. It's it's Victor Wembanyama, and it's not really a close second, even though, I'll tell you what, man, there's a guy in Scoot Henderson we're going to talk about here in just a second who would be number one pick in just about any other draft, but leave that for it. Put a, put a cork in that for now. Uh, the Spurs have shown time and time again they can put together a supporting cast once they have the centerpiece uh, in place. Uh, they did it with T- with David Robinson. They did it with Tim Duncan. It's all it's all in place now. Maybe not all. they still got to probably figure out the other players uh, outside of Victor Wembanyama, there's a reason they are in position to have the number one overall pick this year once again, but it's all in place for him. I'm looking forward to seeing what Greg Popovich in the front office can do once Big Vic gets in the building. This was probably the best possible landing spot for him as far as uh, developing as a player in his career. I think Popovich is probably going to have to, excuse me, find a little bit more... Um, a rhetorical tact, if you will. He's a he's a big uh, lay into his players, yelling a lot, old school type. I mean, he's he's 72, 73 years old. So I mean, that's kind of that's that's kind of what the previous era was about. You were, you were hard on your players, but you loved them, and his, his players end up loving. It. And I think Greg Popovich, he's. <laughs> He's shown time and again that he can adapt his game to kind of uh, fit with the times a little bit more. And I think he's going to do that again with, with Victor Wimbanyama. There's probably going to be a little bit of a uh, a bit of an adjustment period at first. But once he, he gets the guy in the building and realizes what kind of prospect he is, you know, he will change accordingly or he will, you know, eventually get out of the building entirely. And I don't think that second option is going to happen. I think Greg Popovich is going to figure out a way to stick around with this player and make sure he turns into the best possible player that he can be. But it's going to be overshadowed because of the magnitude of what uh, what Vic is as a prospect. 
But Charlotte at number two, moving on to Scoot Henderson, like I was just talking about, is going to get a player that would be the number one pick in just about any other draft, hands down, I would say. And he's not a guy that's, that's received much attention with the hype around Victor Wimbanyama, but he's been he's been comped as a bigger uh, Derrick Rose, and he's going to play alongside one of the most dynamic guards in the league right now in LaMelo Ball as far as playmaking, ball handling, all that stuff. A, a young, promising guard who hasn't even, uh, I don't think LaMelo Ball has even gotten to the point where he can sign that uh, that lucrative second contract just yet. He's still playing on that rookie deal. So you bring in Scoot Henderson, you got LaMelo Ball. That's maybe one of the most promising young backcourts in the entire league. Plus, I mean, no shade to Michael Jordan as a player, but definitely shade it to Michael Jordan as an owner. He's going to be selling the team in the near future. There's a real chance they get some solid new management that can build around the, the backcourt, unlike what Michael Jordan has shown with... I'm, for, for whatever reason, be it an unwillingness to, to pay players in free agency, uh, an inability to hire a good coach, a good GM to run the team, just has not worked out with Michael Jordan thus far. And as long as he's there, I'm not really sure it's going to work out going forward because I've seen no evidence to the contrary uh, to this point. It's not going to be talked about in the main NBA discourse, and it might not even show up in the next uh, season or two. I think Charlotte's still got a ways to go before they're in a competing place. But I'll tell you what, the Hornets are going to have the foundational pieces in place to build a contender in the near future over there. And it's not something that people are going to realize right away. But if you're listening to this show, which a couple of you are, a couple a couple smart people out there are, watch the Charlotte Hornets. Next year might not show up, but Scoot Henderson is a legit prospect. Like I said, if Victor Wembanyama wasn't in this draft, he would be the number one pick pretty easily. Uh, unless unless the, the Charlotte Hornets just overthink it they go with like a Brandon Miller in this spot Scoot Henderson's going to be there and I feel like he's going to be a foundational piece for that franchise going forward I don't know if he's going to be better than Victor Wimbanyama but he's going to show up very quickly in ways that people aren't going to be paying attention to just because of the hype the the hype vortex around what Victor Wimbanyama has been there's two legit, very, uh, maybe not franchise changer in Scoot Henderson, but a really, really good star caliber talent uh, going to Charlotte as well. So there you have it. Victor Wimbanyama going to the San Antonio Spurs in all likelihood. Scoot Henderson going to the Hornets in all likelihood. Those could be real sorts of uh, game changers, at least for the Spurs. We'll have to see what happens with the Charlotte Hornets as far as management is concerned. But uh, with that, let's let's get away from the basketball for a bit, shall we? And I'm talking about just for a bit because there is another story we got to talk to, uh, talk about at some point here. But Bob Baffert is back, baby. National treasure, a Bob Baffert train horse, wins in a depleted Preakness field, but a win is a win. The Kentucky Derby champion was still in there, so you know what? Beat that guy or that horse, if nothing else. This was the first race that a Baffert-trained horse, easy for me to say, could run again after the year-long ban for pumping horses just full of steroids. I mean, just putting Winstraw in their blood, whatever they give horses uh, nowadays to make them go faster. That's what Bob Baffert was accused of doing. He'll deny it to the end of days because he has to, otherwise his reputation is totally sullied, but there's a reason they suspended him for that that year and change, and it's because you know the, the horses were all juiced up. I mean, no no two ways about it. Uh, this was the eighth Bob Baffert trained horse to win the Preakness. 
Also, one of his horses in the undercard got euthanized because of a racing injury. So, Bob is fully back, baby. I mean, we got horses being trained under mysterious, maybe not mysterious, but questionable circumstances. We got other horses winning the races. I mean, the full Bob Baffert experience, you got it in this one, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, you know what? Kentucky, Kentucky Derby, my mouth is not working today, folks. Uh, the K Kentucky Derby winner, Mage, came in third, so no Triple Crown this year. And uh, you know what? Honestly, don't really care about horse racing, but Baffert is back, baby. Also, uh, I, I love a good chance to talk about du a dude pumping horses full of steroids. So this was this was my excuse. Um, there you go. Horses. There you have it, folks. Uh, on to other sports I don't really care a whole lot about. Golf. Brooks Kepko wins the PGA Championship, and we are in a dead and depressing part of the sports calendar right now, folks. So let's talk about the golf, shall we? Uh, good for Kepka. Uh, after all the injuries he went through and the ridicule associated with jumping over to the Live Tour, um, had some pearl-clutching golf analysts in a pretzel having to say good things about a guy who took Saudi blood money, which is always fun to see. I mean, I love... As a guy who is all a little bit awkward, maybe it's something I should talk to a therapist about, but I just love seeing people uncomfortable in social and public situations. It just it warms my heart, makes me feel like people are like me sometimes, you know, it just, oh, good, good, awkward sort of uh, clashing of the minds, if you will. Just love it. It's, it's good for the soul. It makes me cringe inside, but it makes everyone else cringe too. And I just, I love it. Just love to see it. Um, but anyways, it is... Brooks Kepka's fifth career major win, all coming since 2017. That's the most during that span of seven, six or seven year span. Um, so, hey, interesting, interesting time in golf right now. Not something that we would have seen coming uh, with Brooks Kepka coming back to form the way he has, especially with those injuries I was talking about. But when he left the, the PGA Tour, there was a reason he took that live contract. One, it's it's life-changing money and, you know, I... I Again, I've said this back when the whole live thing was first popping off last year. You don't know. You can you can go on your moral grandstanding tour all you want. You don't know how you're going to react to having hundreds of millions of dollars plopped on the table right in front of you. All you got to do is sign this paper and it is yours for the taking until it is right there. You, you just simply don't know how you'd react. And personally, being a poor ass motherfucker as I am right now, I can't say I wouldn't take that money because I'd say 95% sure I would take that money and run if the live if the live tour came up to me and said, hey, you're going to play for some Saudi blood money for about $100 million. I'll be like, all right, I'm going to put my morals to the side for a couple of years and then retire. That That's there you have it right there. That, that's my whole philosophy on that sort of thing. So I'm not going to. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and morally grandstand about it. But after after he left the, the PGA Tour, he was on a bad, bad streak of play in, in the PGA. So going over the Live Tour, thinking maybe Brooks Kepka, fade, Brooks Kepka fades into obscurity with this, this new Live deal. Not the case at all. He got healthier. He got better. And... It's always really been for Brooks Kepke. He cares more about the majors than just about any other thing on the calendar. And now that he's healthy, it feels like he can really capitalize on that on that loving of the majors a little bit more. And it, I'm looking forward to seeing where he goes from here. Maybe this is uh, maybe this is the final major win. You never know with these sorts of things. But he's playing the best golf that he's played in his well, maybe not his entire career. He had a couple years there where he won multiple majors in a season. But getting back to major winning form, he played really well at the Masters. Um, 
played very well at, well, I guess the, the U.S. Open is coming up. Still got the Open Championship, so a couple more opportunities for him to get one. But, hey, good for Brooks Kepka for coming back. He's a likable guy, no matter what you feel about him taking the, the Saudi money. I mean, just listening to him talking to interviews, if you're if you're not one of those, like, uh, pro-clutching golf fans, not even referring to the, the, the Saudi stuff anymore, just... You, you know golf people. You know people who are really into golf. They love their weird little rules and, you know, their, the, the pomp and circumstance of the whole thing. The gentleman's game, if you will. I love competitors. And Brooks Kepka, he's cocky. He's competitive. And it's sports. Sports is better when you got these types of guys in it. I love Brooks Kepka. And I think even outside of that, just listening to him in interviews, I mean, he seems like he's a fun guy. He seems like he's a good guy to be around. And we need we need more of those guys in the sport overall. And I think we're slowly but surely getting more of them. I feel like there's a lot of fun guys in golf right now, whether they be on the Live Tour, whether they be on the PGA Tour proper. Just a lot of good guys out there. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I like where the sport is right now, even though I can't lie to you. I did not watch a second of this tournament. Not, not a single second live. But also, I'm also going to be honest with you. The coolest thing that happened was not Brooks Kepka. It was Michael Block having probably the greatest sports moment or series of sports moments in his entire life. Uh, Block is a club pro out of California, which... If you don't know what that is, welcome to the show. I didn't really either until I guess probably a year ago, I suppose. Uh, that essentially means he works for a golf course, a golf club. Uh, he gives lessons, uh, promos for the club, does that for a living pretty much, which if I were just to do that, that sounds awesome. I mean, you just, you show up, you play golf every day, you keep your handicap low, you teach some schlubs, some schlubs about how to improve their game. They're probably going to go out there and shoot 90 later that day, but they're going to, they're going to put in all the hours they can to get better. Uh, but I'll tell you what, not a bad little living to make there. He gets, uh, he won a qualifying tournament to earn an invitation to the PGA championship, I believe. And he's one of the better, um, um, uh, course golf pro, tour pros out there, I suppose. Um, uh, club pro, I don't, I don't know. Again, just talked about the term, and I didn't even remember what the term was. But I digress. One of the one of the better uh, tour pro or club pros out there. I think he's won several sort of uh, uh, tournaments like this. But he made the most of that opportunity he was given, though. On Sunday, he hit a hole in one clean on a par three. I mean, no bounce. No roll, did not even hit the grass. It just went from the tee box straight directly into the cup. And it was an electric moment there uh, on the back nine for, I mean, basically everyone to watch. I mean, it's the, it's the one moment in the entire tournament that I think I actually watched because it was just all over, all over social media, all over Twitter. And it was, you know, the, the, the situation that this guy was in, being what he is, a, a club pro, uh, not expecting to really compete over here, but just having a hell of a tournament. Then he saved par at the end of his final round to secure a top 15 finish, which comes with a $260,000 payout, guarantees him an invitation to next year's PGA Championship. And oh, by the way, he also got an invite to the next PGA event at the Charles Schwab Challenge on uh, so Sunday. Undoubtedly, one of, if not the greatest days in Michael Block's life. Obviously, he's got kids, so the birth of your kid, yada yada yada. That's you know one of the best best feelings in life, I suppose. I, don't, I obviously don't have kids, so I wouldn't know. But outside of kids being born, probably the greatest day in Michael Block's life. And CBS did their damnedest to get Block to cry in a post-round interview with Amanda Renner. That's on social media if you want to go look it up. Just it, hilarious. I mean, it. it 
I mean, maybe it's uncomfortable because it's so clear what they're trying to do. They're trying to get that, ooh, we got to get that cry on camera. This is going to go viral. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, all right, uh, here's, a, here's a video a shot of, of someone else watching you around. Oh, it's your son shooting the video saying, oh, by the way, I think he's going to make a hole in one in this one. And his son is sick. He I don't know what type of disease he's got, but he, he's sick and he's not feeling well and Oh man, I believe my dad's gonna do it. He's gonna get a hole in one here, and man, he got it. And you know what? To their credit, it worked. I mean, it, it's hilarious how hard they tried to make uh, make Michael Block cry, though. And he he cried multiple times. So I highly recommend going to to watch that if you enjoy being uncomfortable with just how soulless and cynical this this sports uh, media industry can be. They were they were fishing for that one. I think they really didn't have to try that hard, quite honestly. I mean, Block was crying at every opportunity after that round. I mean, he he cried when he got the uh, the invitation to Charles Schwab. Schwab he cried. Uh, in the interview afterwards with Amanda Renner when they were just trying everything in their playbook to get him to cry. I mean, he's a crier. There's nothing wrong with that, man. I mean, Block was crying at every opportunity. No shade here. I'd probably be bawling my eyes out too if I realized a lifelong dream like that on the biggest stage and against overwhelming odds of the country. I mean, tour pros, I keep saying tour pros, club pros don't do this. I mean, club pros are guys that, you know, they send them in there. Uh, maybe you get some good publicity for for your golf uh, club if if you go out there and you make the cut or something like that. But you're not expecting them to get top 15, qualify for the next year's uh, PGA Championship, nothing like that. So this was, this was a dream scenario for Michael Block. And you know what? It's inspired me to go get good at golf. I mean, sure, I was talking about this with with my my family last week. Like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to try and get good at golf this offseason. But you know what? If this guy can do it in his mid-40s, maybe me, who has played less than five full rounds in his life and shot well over 100 in each one, uh, maybe I can do it. I've got time to make it happen. I mean, who's to say? Uh, But there you have it. Talking about myself now, which means I'm probably done talking about golf. Uh, So, hey cut it. It's done. Let's move on to the next one. Let's get back to basketball, shall we? Doc Rivers got fired on the day I released the previous episode, so no surprise here. I think everyone knew what time it was in Philly. I said as much last week that he was going to get fired as a matter of, of when, not if at that point. And the real questions now are, one, does James Harden uh, decide uh, to come back? And, and does GM Daryl Morey even want him back? Which I think the answer to that is probably yeah, on Daryl Morey's side. He's kind of, James Harden is Daryl Morey's boy. He traded for him uh, coming from the the uh, OKC Thunder back in the day. Uh, he traded for him again from the Nets with when he was with uh, the 76ers now. It feels like James Harden, uh, d- despite all of the all of the analytical inclinations that Daryl Morey has, James Harden is just the one soft weak spot uh, in Daryl Morey's heart right now. So, Feels like he's going to want James Harden back. It's a question of whether James Harden wants to be back. I don't know. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. Um, I, I feel like with with what he's shown over the last couple of years, really throughout the entire course of his career, he is what he is. I'm not sure that's a guy you want to build around with the postseason success in mind, but I digress on that front. Two, who does the front office bring in as the next head coach? And that may be uh, one of, if not the most consequential question of them all. At least it's a big domino as to what's going to happen outside of the head coach. But hey, you bring in a guy that can you know manage some personalities, still be good as far as 
uh, the the on-court tactician stuff is concerned. That's that's less important important than managing the personalities. But you want a guy that can come in there uh, out of timeouts and draw up something that's going to get you a bucket most times. I mean, it's, Eric Spolster has been great at it his entire career. Uh, Steve Kerr has been great at that. It's what what some of the best coaches in the NBA do in addition to managing those personalities. But who do they bring in? I don't know. I'm not. Don't have intimate knowledge of the uh, the head coaching candidates out there out there outside of Monty Williams and Mike Budenholzer. Which, if they bring in Mike Budenholzer, that's probably the most hilarious of these outcomes because they're just going to be right back where they were last year, uh, based on what I've seen from Budenholzer over the last couple of years. But that's a big question up in the air. Number three, how do the Sixers restructure this roster after continually losing in the second round year after year? I think it was three straight years. Under, under Doc Rivers. It was a couple straight years even before that, before Doc Rivers got there. I don't know how they, I don't know how they restructure this team. I don't know how they can with Joel Embiid on the books. But with that, the fourth question, most important, with all of that in mind, will Joel Embiid continue to keep the faith or has this relationship reached a breaking point where he might request a trade? There's a lot swirling in around Philly uh, that bears watching over the course of this summer. This team could look completely different by the beginning of next season. I'm not sure the Sixers can justify running it back with the same core they've got, though. So, I mean, much like the Boston Celtics that I was talking about earlier in this episode, the 76ers, maybe even more so, are probably going to look drastically different going into the next season. I, I think probably Joel Embiid is there, but I also wouldn't be shocked that with the way this whole thing is going, especially if Harden leaves town... I think Joel Embiid might just say, hey, look, just trade me. It's probably going to be easier this way if you just trade me. Just hit the reset button. Uh, call an end to the process, if you will, and, and keep going forward from there. I don't know what the Sixers could be. I mean, maybe the most drastic swing possible this offseason. Uh, they, they could go from being one of the better teams in the East, maybe making a championship run uh, going into the playoffs to coming out of it. I mean, just looking to hit the reset button. Again, I would not be surprised at all if that is the case going forward here. So who's to say Joel Embiid is the one that's going to hinge on a lot of that and even more so than that. You're talking about James Harden, the head coach, uh, all the supporting cast. Like I said before, uh, with I believe it was the Celtics I was talking about, not the greatest class of free agents this year. So uh, maybe, I, maybe you try and rebuild through free agency, but it's not the best year to do it. Maybe you go for a trade. Maybe you do a sign and trade with Harden or something like that, where he opts into the deal and you, and you try to get another player out of that. I'm just not sure what the Sixers can do this offseason realistically to get themselves in a championship position, though. It just doesn't feel like, um, for better or for worse, Joel Embiid cannot stay healthy in the biggest moments. Um, he hasn't shown it yet. I don't think he's going to show it going forward. And, and because of that, I'm just not sure this Sixers team, I'm not sure this Sixers core is going to be good enough to win a championship. And if, if that's the case, you might as well just blow it up. I might as well hit the reset button. It's going to be hard to get another player like Joel Embiid in there, but I mean, I'm not sure what else you can do at this point. It's just, it, it feels like it's run its course there. In Philly, this is going to be quite an offseason, I feel like, for Daryl Morey. Got a lot of work to do, and it all starts with James Harden, with that head coach, and branches out from there. A lot of dominoes to fall this offseason in Philadelphia. With that, though, let's get the hell out of basketball. I've talked entirely too much about it today. Um, College football. There are college football headline coming in. It's because we got some seismic activity percolating underneath the surface right now. The ACC might be disintegrating before our eyes, folks. And um, 
Might have heard about this floating around last week if you're kind of plugged into the college football space. But if not, let me give you the gist of the story right now. Uh, the ACC, the bottom line boils down to they got a terrible TV deal. I mean, it works out all right for the very bottom tier of the conference, at least right now. But doesn't pay the top-level schools a value that is commiserate with what they bring to the table. I mean, the Florida States, um, the Clemsons, hell, even the North Carolinas of the world are, are probably bringing in way, way more money than, than someone like a, like a Boston College or a Virginia or someone like that is right now. And even more than that, it doesn't expire until 2036. That's 13 years left on that TV deal. And by that point, even the lowest level schools will be underpaid. It's just that it's a deal that is entirely too long. It's entirely skewed towards the networks and the TV institutions that, that signed the deal in the first place. And the ACC has said that it's basically unbreakable. You can't get out of it. Uh, so no matter what, no, no matter what way you slice it, it's just not an awesome deal uh, for this, this conference. With that in mind, though, there are seven schools right now that are trying to see just how unbreakable that deal is in the, in the words of CBS and just about everyone else that has covered this. They're getting some lawyers on the job. These seven schools are as followed. Clemson, Florida State, North Carolina, Miami, NC State, Virginia, and Virginia Tech all looking to break this TV deal right now, which... It's, it's, it sounds major. It sounds like there's some real discourse in the ACC right now, but it's not just the TV deal that is at stake. This is, this is consequential because if they can make this happen, if they can get out of this ACC TV deal, they will likely all be moving on to new conferences. Not all of them are going to be moving to the same conference, obviously, but some combination of the Big Ten, the SEC, and the Big 12 is going to gobble up these seven schools if they get out of this TV deal. That would kick off a new wave of major conference realignment, which may have major ramifications uh, for the Pac-12. For all of these conferences, if the ACC crumbles, it feels like it's going to have a domino effect that's going to affect everything. It's going. It's all leading towards what we've been we've been saying time and again. Everyone who's followed the sport, first off. Basketball clearly doesn't matter because the ACC was one of, if not the best basketball conference in the entire country consistently over the past several years, especially after they gobbled up some of those old uh, Big East teams uh, from that, from whenever that conference disintegrated in the previous iteration of conference realignment. This time around, it's you can tell clearly, it's all based on football. Football is the breadwinner at all these schools, and football is going to dictate a major shift here in the Pac-12 talked about before only briefly uh, about that TV deal still not being signed and like I said it is still not signed right now it is a very fluid situation USC UCLA already moving to the Big Ten it could be even more teams especially if the ACC breaks down because you don't want to be caught on the outside looking in and for better or for worse, it feels like the ACC and the Pac-12 are going to be the guys on the outside looking in right now. It's not, as much as we like to say Power 5, it is not a Power 5 anymore. It is a Power 2 and then the other three at this point. And the Big 12 is, I mean, through sheer force of will. Remember, back in, I guess it was the early 2010s or something like that, when the first real big wave of conference modern conference realignment happened, uh, where team, Texas A&M moving over to the SEC, uh, teams moving over to the Big 12, all that sort of stuff. 
the Big 12 was looking like they were on the verge of collapse, obviously. And back then, it was talk, there, were talk that, uh, there was talk that Texas and OU were going to leave, uh, whether it be for the Big 10 or the SEC. Now, they've finally ended up leaving to the SEC now. So, uh, ended up coming to fruition eventually. But through sheer force of will, the Big 12 is coming out looking like, of those other three conferences, the Big 12, the ACC, and the Pac-12, the Big 12 is the one that has just shown the want to to stay relevant, and they've added teams like uh, UCF, uh, like, like a, a Cincinnati over there. Uh, BYU, which may not be the biggest name in the world, but as far as the money they bring in, there's a reason they were independent for a good amount of time there. It's because they can make a whole lot of Mormon money. I'll tell you what, Notre Dame, that's the big reason why they're independent. They can make a whole lot of money on their own just because of that that Catholic institution money. I mean, they can go just basically anywhere can BYU and just say, hey, we're the Mormon representative. Bring all your Mormons to this stadium, have them buy tickets and have them watch the game. They are a money-making machine. Uh, Houston also joining the Big 12 as well. They lost basically every player known to man on that football team, but still a solid addition as well. And they're going to gobble up. I'm telling you right now, they're going to they're gonna gobble up some of these Pac-12 teams. I think some of these ACC teams. The Big 12, they're not going to be on that power two of the Big 10 SEC level. But they're going to end up still being kind of relevant. Like I said, of those of those other three, they're probably going to be in the best position to still say, say okay, we've got a major conference over here. Maybe not on the level of the SEC or the Big 10. But we're still going to have a major sort of conference uh, unlike the, the Pac-12 and the, uh, and the ACC. So... This is all to say we are on the verge. The conference realignment avalanche may be just on the horizon right now. We are on the verge of some major, major shifts happening. It's just waiting for a domino to fall, whether that be the Pac-12 TV deal falling through, whether that be these seven ACC schools finding a way out of that ACC TV deal. We are on the verge of major conference realignment once again. It is about to spark back up in a way that we have not seen in over a decade at this point, I think. So stay tuned to that. Um, I'm not sure whether it's going to be good for college football as we know it. I think it's certainly going to be different than what we've known for quite some time, but change is on the horizon. It feels like the wheels are turning to a point that I don't think it can be reversed at this point. It's not, it feels like a matter of when, not if. Uh, the, the, the soil is loose at this point. A mudslide feels like it is coming, and it's just a matter of time before it happens. So keep an eye on that. feels like conference realignment is about to kick back up in a big way here soon. So yeah, keep an eye on that going forward. Um, let's move to the NFL, shall we? There, there's going to be a playoff game on the cock, Peacock. Uh, the NFL announced last week that a that Peacock will have exclusive rights to stream a playoff game in the wild card round of next year's playoffs. And I'll tell you what, folks, I hate it. It's the worst. I, I, I get that streaming is the future, but buddy, I am not trying to pay for another fucking streaming service right now. I absolutely hate this. Um, you're, you're at the whims of your internet to tell you, okay, will I be able to see on time what's happening? Will this thing crash? I mean, Peacock has never streamed something like this before. I mean, Amazon Prime hadn't streamed anything like that before, before they got Thursday Night Football and it ended up working out pretty well. But Peacock has not streamed anything like this before. Who's to say if it ends up working out? Uh, 
It's just another paywall you got to go through to get NFL football after they they bungled it with YouTube TV not being able. I still can't get over the fact that th- those greedy sons of bitches just could not find a way to be like, all right, you've got one team you want to watch. How about you pay to watch those 17 regular season games? Nope, nope. They got just this stupid NFL Sunday ticket where I got to pay for all the teams regular season games to be able to watch them. And some of those might be blacked out if it's not. If, if there's no like sell out there. So yeah, screw them. I, I hate it. This is the worst. Um, not really much I can do to, to change it. Well, I personally can't do shit to change it, but this is just another step in the process as they slowly transition away from that regular cable television sort of model and into the streaming world. Um, you see ESPN's doing it. Uh, obviously, the, the NFL, is they're reading the tea leaves here. They're, they're moving towards that. I cannot stress enough just how much I hate this trend, though. I don't... I don't want to pay for these streaming services. I don't watch a whole lot of streaming TV in the first place. There's no reason for me to even really go out and pay for this outside of of watching football. And I'm I'm sure that's part of the the business model too. You know, from Peacock's perspective, they want to get their grubby little hands on my money as well. So, I mean, they they want to find a way to get in on that that football uh, deal. So, it, it makes a lot of sense from a business perspective. Uh, from a viewership perspective, and this is kind of really in in pro sports, in in college football, we're seeing it now. It feels like we're getting a lot more solutions that cater towards the big businesses in, of the world rather than towards the, the fan experience. And this is just another step in that direction. Uh, I think some of the NFL sycophants were excited about this. Me as a lifelong NFL fan, I I absolutely hate this, but. Whatever. It's going to be the playoff game, so I'm probably going to end up watching it. Uh, I'm not paying for it, though. I'll tell you that right now. I'll create I'll create 50,000 Gmail accounts just so I never have to pay for Peacock. I will just do a free trial on it and then cancel right after the NFL game is over because fuck you, NFL. I'm not paying for your stupid bullshit and fuck you, Peacock. I'm not paying for your stupid bullshit either. Just, you know... What what else is new? I'm I'm hating on big business. That's just how this this whole thing works in my life. I feel like, but whatever. It's it's a playoff game, so I'll end up watching it even if I don't pay these greedy corporate fat cats their money to do it. Uh, with that big old tone shift as we go on out the door here, shorter episode than usual because again, it's the doldrums of the offseason. There's really not much to talk about here, but. Let's talk about a nuanced situation, shall we? It's, this, you know, seems like right up my alley of, of topics to go on. Jim Brown, he died over the weekend at age of 87. And I am far from qualified to talk about the legacy of, of Jim Brown because it's it's complicated. And, uh, you know, like everything else in this world, it is far from a cut and dry story. But why not give it a shot here? I'm not going to go deep deep in depth. I'm not going to talk about this for, for 20 minutes. It's just going to be a, a trick, a quick... Uh, you know, mainly it's a football podcast, even though we started off with basketball, horse racing, golf, everything under the sun except football. But I, it wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense for me not to at least touch on it. So here we go. I'm going to gonna give it a try. He was one of the greatest players in, in history of football and a titan in the civil rights and economic equality activism after he was done with football. Uh, uh, played in the films like The Dirty Dozen, all that sort of stuff. Good acting career as well outside of football. Uh, just an icon of his age. Probably his most famous post-football career image was him. Bill Russell, 
uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then Lou Alcindor, because you know he hadn't. I don't think he converted to Islam at that point. Uh, but flanking Muhammad Ali at a news conference after Ali decided to be a conscientious objector to being drafted for the Vietnam War. Iconic moment in civil rights, iconic moment in American history of, of protest, all that sort of stuff. Jim Brown was a big part of it. Didn't necessarily agree with what Ali was doing, but stood behind him, stood his ground with him in solidarity uh, with Muhammad Ali, and that was admirable. Uh, later, he shifted his focus to helping uh, young black kids find better economic opportunities in an objectively unfair system. I think there's no two ways about it. That's just how it was uh, back in the day, still is to a certain extent now. Didn't fix everything, but certainly didn't hurt as well. Um, after football uh, and his acting career were done, he really worked for the rest of his life to make this country a better place uh, for for black people, for for everyone really, but mainly uh, for the for minority communities and the underserved. Undeniable, undeniable here that Jim Brown did a lot of good in his life. But we can't just sit here and pretend like Jim Brown was a saint among men. He was never convicted, but he had several, I mean, several, more than I can count on one hand, I think, accusations of domestic violence and sexual assault over the course of 30 plus years, pretty much. He went on trial uh, for an accusation leveled against him by his own wife at the time. I think in 1999, uh, one woman claimed to father his child as a result of a sexual assault in the mid-60s. Uh, and like I said, while he never got convicted, the fact that similar accusations popped up again and again and again over the course of decades, including from his own wife, like I said, should tell you he was far from an angel. I, this is not a, not a situation where this is a, a cut and dry, great, great man. Uh, like I said, much like everything else in this world, Jim Brown was not a shining beacon of moral character. He also wasn't a pilloried symbol of the evils of man either. He had he was had some demons in his life, did some great stuff in his life. He was somewhere in the middle of that that good and evil spectrum. He was human, as we all are. That's that's kind of the way this whole thing shaped out. It's kind of how all our lives end up shaping out. We do some good, we do some bad, uh, some worse than others, some greater than others. But let us let us take this time to celebrate all the good uh, that Jim Brown did in his life. But also keep in mind that this was this was not a completely pure-hearted man. He wasn't he wasn't a saint among men, like I said before. He was a human, flawed like the rest of us. There's a valuable lesson to be learned in that. I mean, people who have some demons in their life can still do great things, and people that do great things can still do wicked things on the other end of things. That's just that's just the duality of man. Life is lived in shades of gray. I say it over and over again in my own life, in my own mind. That's just how things work in this world. There's no pure black and white, no pun intended there with, with uh, the reputation of activism for, for Jim Brown here in this one. But just keep in mind, no one, n none of your, your favorite politicians, none of your favorite political activists, none of them are saints. And most of the people, there are some terrible people in this world, but uh, terrible people can still do great things when it's all said and done. So it's it's a complicated legacy. Again, it's one that I'm far from qualified to, to speak on, but an, an interesting and maybe conflicting life that Jim Brown had. Undeniable his uh, his impact on the world, though. So uh, take this time, I guess, to, to think about what Jim Brown meant to this world as a whole. And with that, 
I think we're done for this episode. I think we hit the we hit some serious. We hit some some less than serious. We we hit some stuff that I don't care about. We hit some things that I do really do care about. So that's all for this episode. If you enjoyed, subscribe, leave a five star rating so we can grow this bad boy a little bit. If you didn't enjoy it, take that opinion to the grave. Tell people you loved it anyways because I'm still trying to grow this bad boy. Thank you very much. Also, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Trying to grow that little bit as well. Uh, I release one episode per week until football is back in full swing. Uh, during the offseason, really no telling what, what I'm talking about. Could be good, could be bad. Uh, just show up, tune in to find out, I suppose. There's my sales pitch for you. And uh, roughly, follow me on, on all my socials. Uh, roughly one episode per week, like I said. Uh, link will be in the description for my, my socials. You don't have to spell my, my fucked up Eastern Block name. By socials, I basically just mean Twitter. Just just follow me on Twitter at Caleb Verzak. Uh, like I said, link will be in the description for that. If you want to contact the show, shoot me a DM or shoot me an email at unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. That's unqualifiedanalysis at gmail.com. Uh, if you'd like to add to the show, uh, have a business inquiry for whatever reason, just, you know, say business or show on the subject line if you're emailing me uh, so you can be categorized accordingly. Uh, and then like, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in to Unqualified Analysis. As always, I've got no clue what I'm talking about. One thing I learned this week, though, there is a clam species called the ocean quahog. Yes, like the quahog from Family Guy. It's I'm pretty sure that's what the uh, what the town was named after. Uh, that can live for f- over 400 years. Um, I can't remember what the name of the clam was. Uh, they gave it some catchy name, but it was like over 400-year-old clam. Uh, ended up killing it so they could study it. But oldest ocean species in the world over 400 years, the ocean quahog. There you go. You've learned something today, as have I. Uh, have a good one, I suppose.